build the best product. I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now. For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing. Cause no unnecessary harm. Suborganic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To give some love back to this river that doesn't have any. It's not getting any love. See what drives us at Patagonia.com. Okay, I have something to admit. I am John Muir. That's right, you heard me. I am John Muir. Okay, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking Fitz has gone crazy. Maybe. But that's not going to change the fact that I know the truth. I am John Muir. Or, at least I could be. I remember the first time I saw Yosemite Valley. I must have been about 20 years old. I was with a friend. We are driving north in the Central Valley on Highway 41. And right as you get to the, the throat of Yosemite Valley, there's a tunnel. So we go into this tunnel. It's getting dark. Inside the tunnel, I'm blinking. And then as we pop out, it gets bright. My eyes dilate, and it's just bright. And then, bang! All of a sudden, right in front of me, is El Cap. And I just remember, it was like something inside of me split open. I never thought I would feel this way when I saw this. It wasn't something I'd built up in my mind. But that's that's how I felt. It was like, it was like being hit, smacked, and then also held at the same moment. And it's it stuck with me my entire life. It was it was like in front of me. Here's the heart of the Sierra. It was, it was well to quote John Muir. It was gloriously colored and so radiant, and it seemed not clothed with light, but wholly composed of it, like the wall of a celestial city. Those words they could have been mine that day, because that's what I felt, and I know that I got to that place because of climbing, because of my sport. And I bet you good money that you probably have something, a place, maybe not Yosemite, but a place like it that does the same thing for you. Our sports, our travels, our dreams put us in special circumstances to see the edge of nature's celestial cities. This tradition began with Mirror. And now, amongst us, there is a new breed of activists, people who come from these sports, from these passions, rather than the activist community. They aren't affiliated with any non-profit, and often the places they're seeking to protect are so small, and the ideas they're pushing so amorphous, that their passions, they could only come right from the heart. It wasn't just a river, it was a place that was maybe spiritual, it just had an aura to it that kind of made itself stand out. So I kind of don't know what came over me. I was like, sure, we could do that. Like, yeah, let's just do that. It's home, you know? I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's the desert. It's the red rock. It's, it's in my blood. It's like family. Today we present the new conservationist. Three stories from men and women like you and me, climbers, skiers, photographers, boaters, who found themselves in moments or it stopped being all fun and games and got personal. What does the new conservationist look like? A little bit like you and me. These are like 
delicata and like called sweet dumpling which is eating locally is a concept that seems to have reached critical mass in our society michael pollan's omnivore's dilemma is a favorite of book clubs but movements don't spring from a single book they begin and are powered by people and those people's habits and those people's pocketbooks movements are the sum of individual actions welcome to local roots farm I think I first wanted to be a farmer when I was like five. We would talk on the phone when we were in middle school, like eighth grade, and Siri would be like, I want to be a farmer. This is Siri Erickson-Brown and her husband, Jason Salvo. You may recognize their voices from some of the ski stories in the diaries. Siri grew up in Seattle. She went to college here, and she still lives here. But she's managing to live out her dream of being a farmer. And I always wanted to live in a little homestead cabin where I didn't have any running water, I'd have to go haul my water from the creek and I'd have a wood-burning stove and I'd go chop wood and I'd have chickens and I'd just hang out by myself in this cabin all the time. And I had this whole thing, I had it, once I drew a plan for it and I was like, here's where I'm going to keep my record collection, all classical music. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll just only listen to records of classical music and national public radio. I was probably like 10. (laughs) I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) Who was I? Siri and Jason put themselves at the center of Seattle's elite by doing what they unapologetically are passionate about, growing food. Despite her childhood fascination with classical music and NPR, Siri is without a doubt Seattle's, if not the state of Washington's, coolest farmer. In 2006, Siri was at her local farmer's market when she started up a conversation about her tomato plants with a farmer. Siri was between jobs, had just finished a master's degree, so when the farmer suggested working as an intern, she jumped at the opportunity. When I was working at that farm, I met Farmer Dan. And he's, well, who's Farmer Dan? He's this crazy guy who's our business partner. Farmer Larry, who was a, another intern with me, he kept working after I quit. And he and Dan got to talking a lot in the late summer, early fall time about what the two of them should do because they both didn't like the guy who was running the show. Larry no. called me. He was like, I think you should talk to Dan. So we, I, we came out. It was like November, late October probably mm-hmm. of that same year, 2006. Okay. And we came out here and we were like, should we start a farm? It was really cold and we walked around and we were like, okay. There was one major problem. They had no money. So they went to family and friends. They turned to some of the members of the community they've been a part of since they could walk. The Seattle ski community. How can we get money? (laughs) I know. Let's ask a bunch of people to send us money, even though we've never grown anything before and we haven't even planted anything. Like, yeah, send us $300. Seriously, we know what we're doing. And it works. Like, 60 people send us $300. It was pretty cool. The concept was simple. $300 would get a customer an entire season's worth of vegetables, a community-supported agriculture box. It would provide their new business, Local Roots Farm, the capital to get up and running. I think I'm a pretty cautious person in life, and so I kind of don't know what came over me. I was like, sure, we could do that. Like, yeah, let's just do that. It's really weird. Their skiing connections filtered out into the restaurant. They started selling to Seattle's hippest restaurants. Restaurants like the Corson Building, Sitka and Spruce, the Root Table. Places where the clientele wear tight jeans and accessorize with bulging wallets. These restaurants are oh so good, and they will bankrupt a dirtbag quicker than a trip to Aspen. It's not very far. 
But it's no place to hide. Amongst the chefs, local roots became known for their spicy salad grates. The thing was, Siri, Farmer Dan, Jason, they weren't just good at the business side of things. They grew exceptional food in a way that had the least impact on the environment. It appealed to people. Stands at Seattle's network of farmers markets rounded out their business. And then somewhere along the way, one of the chefs they sold to had a really good idea. It was time to take the customers, the most passionate fans of the food, to the farm. Last year. That was last year. Yeah. That was our friend Emily, who cooks at the Corson building, who was like, hey, we should do dinners at your farm. That was the best thing we've ever done. It was an instant success. The following year, more chefs from Seattle's top restaurants, each with their own cult followings, signed up. People who had never set foot on a real working farm found themselves dining amidst rows of carrots and wandering through hothouses brimming with tomatoes. Diners shared long tables family style. When it rained, people huddled in greenhouses. It was fun. Siri and Jason, the chefs they were working with, they had created a mystique. They had made food cool. Where here's a code was no digit. You can handle it. All right, this is two pounds. So that is four dollars of broccoli. At a quick glance, it's hard to see exactly how Siri, Jason, and Farmer Dan have become a part of a bigger push for sustainable agriculture here in the U.S. When you take a look at the mechanism, though, you'll start to see. Here we go. A usually calculated Siri makes a swift, rash decision. She starts a farm. She turns to her community of friends, many of whom she has shared lift chairs and powder days with. She gets them involved in agriculture, makes it affordable for someone on a budget to buy incredible food. The business grows. Chefs take note. Attracted by the chance for an intimate dinner, something out of the norm, a chef's fans visit the farm. They see what goes into their food. Those diners, often immersed in Seattle's culinary scene, demand, expect that level of freshness when they go out to dine. Now, you wouldn't start a restaurant in Seattle without including local ingredients on the menu. Pretty soon, it gets easier for small, local farmers to make a living. That's how individual actions become movements. We're feeding people. We're growing food in, I think, the least impactful way that one can. We're breaking down all these um, barriers between the consumer and the producer so people can have a transparent view of where their food comes from. I think all that stuff is, like... I couldn't, I couldn't think of another job that would feel more rewarding. Okay, this is part two. So what's your favorite crag, favorite stretch of trail, or the perfect break? Now, what would you risk to protect it? are driving through the newest power project in Squamish uh, on the Ashley River um, and we just passed a tunnel that I could drive my truck through that bores through a mountain right up the Ashley Box Canyon uh, to pop out at the top into an intake dam. Massive amount of... We're snaking up a freshly graded dirt road in southwest British Columbia. To the left, giant earth movers sit dormant for the weekend, and to the right, the Ashloo River is slowly making its own hole in the earth. This is big, gnarly whitewater. 
the 30-foot waterfall in front of me, the paddlers call it 50-50. The name speaks for itself. The river cascades through multiple granite canyons, some 10 to 15 feet deep, others 200 feet deep. The Ashley River is just one of those places or one of those rivers that, you know, the first time that I went there, it was like, oh my gosh, this is the most beautiful place I've ever been in my life. And I think I've been to a number of beautiful places, but the Ashley still stands out as just, it's magical. There is something different about it. This is Brian Smith, professional kayaker and filmmaker. He calls Squamish home these days, but back in 2006, he was an American in love with a Canadian woman and struggling to get his papers to live in Canada. The Ashley was already in trouble. The Canadian power company Ledcord wanted to create a small-scale hydroelectric project. It was a type of project being championed as alternatives to large-scale energy projects. The local government, with support of the local community, had already vetoed the plan. To get its project approved, Ledcor simply moved up the political food chain despite local opposition. Brian's friend, Jonathan Moore, called him up. And Jonathan said, there's a public hearing tonight. You, you have to come up here today, paddle the Box Canyon with me, and go to the public hearing. And having never paddled that section of river before, and then going to do it with Jonathan, and then going straight from that paddle to a public hearing about the river, I, I think that moment just energized me. You got a number and you got up there to speak. And I think I was like 147. I sat there and I waited and I waited and I waited and I got up there and I, you know, I just said what I wanted to say about the river and and that really I felt that the people that were making the decision on the river needed to go up and see the river. Brian had three tools to work with. First, and probably most importantly, he was passionate about the Ashloo. Second, he was a kayaker, which allowed him to access the wildest heart of the canyon. He knew how to make a film. He made one about kayaking. Why not make one about the Ashloo? There was so few people that really knew about the issue or really understood how beautiful the place was. So my reaction was like, well, you create a film. You show to people what this place is, how special it is, and you distribute that widely and for free. So Brian went to work. He started calling politicians and civic leaders. And they not only returned his call, they wanted to take part. They wanted to be interviewed. It felt like, oh, okay, there's other people out here that care about this. And I'm pushing their buttons right now to, to keep it going. He wanted to take these voices and bring them to his community, the kayaking community. People needed to know what was happening at the Ashloo. I was trying to get interviews from LEDCOR. You know, I was trying to get the other side. I really wanted the other side. And they agreed to, to saying, yeah, well, we could do some, some stuff with you, but we want to meet with you first. And so in this meeting, they basically delivered threats to me. They said, if you put this film out or you keep moving forward, we're going to make your life really difficult. At the time, my situation was I was living in Canada. Lizanne and I had just been married. But my paperwork had not been fully processed yet in terms of my legal status in Canada. So I was living in Canada, technically illegally, but I was really close to being there legally. And so the threat of losing that and all that effort weighed on me really heavy. In fact, I came home from that meeting with LEDCOR and I told Lizanne, it's done. 
we're over, we're not doing this project, we have to stop. I talked to my friend Shane about that and he told me, they're just threatening you, Brian. And if you listen to their threats, they win. I really had to think about that. And then I decided ultimately, you know what? Shane's right. If I listen to their threats right now and I back off, they win and they win easily. By the time Brian had gotten 49 megawatts ready for release on the internet, local and national groups had already gotten behind Brian's project. And it just like, it was crazy. It took off like a wildfire. I was monitoring the, the downloads and stuff on it. And a lot of those downloads probably initially were from the boating community, but then it just started like going crazy, you know? And, and it was obvious that literally hundreds and then thousands of people were watching this thing. So at that moment, it was like, all right, we are successful. Now, it's late August 2009, two years after the release of 49 megawatts. River flows are prime. The group of Canadian and American kayakers are fired up, discussing the tiny undulations and variations at 5050's intimidating takeoff. Brian is fiddling with a faulty video feed cord. He's been hired by National Geographic to film, a job earned in part by his work on 49 megawatts. The Ashloo story... It ended up becoming big news, earning national headlines in Canada. Brian's little film? It ended up being not so little. There were over a quarter million downloads. And still, Leadcore prevailed. In a week, engineers will open the gate. They will divert the river deep into the hillside through turbines. Southwestern BC will have its megawatts. This is the last day this group of local kayakers will run a wild and free Ashloo. It may be the last day they boated ever. It was kind of bittersweet thinking that in a few days, the river is going to now go into some metal tunnel. And here we are, and we're experiencing it in all of its glory. And it just felt like this amazing energy, and everyone was feeling it. Everyone was on fire. That weekend was particularly special for me because I totally let go of all the, you know, all the crap all the construction, the fact that the river was going into a tunnel and was able to just really focus on what that place was. And it was almost like full circle. It was right back to that very first day that I paddled the Box Canyon with Jonathan. It was that same feeling of just all you can really do is just smile and be like, this is awesome. This is the most amazing experience ever. Now's the time for age of humans care for what can be done for yourself. One thing I noticed while I was working on these stories is that everybody I interviewed for this piece, at one point, each of them decided that they could reinvent themselves. They put money, careers, happiness on the table and simply believed they could tackle a problem that they weren't really sure how to tackle. In a sense, Siri and Brian have been successful at that change. What if you weren't, though? What if you gave up a dream career and failed? Would you have the courage to try again?
my pattern in Southwest Utah has been to engage, burn out, go away, recover, engage, <laughs> burn out, <laughs> go away, recover. This is Lynn Alder. For the past two decades, Lynn has called Southwest Utah's Red Rock Wilderness home. Right on the edge of this wilderness is St. George, Utah's fastest growing area. It's become a massive community for those looking to escape California. The specter of Vegas looms to the south. With this growth comes water and power demands that are difficult to meet in the fragile desert environment. For someone who is closely connected to the land, it can be a difficult thing to watch. When I first met Lynn, he was at the peak of a photography career. His first job out of college had been working as an environmental consultant on an endangered species project. Then he worked for the Grand Canyon Trust, trying to help restore the Virgin River. But after three years of hard work, he started to get frustrated. There was little headway, little to show for his efforts. It felt like swimming upstream. I got really frustrated because I felt like I'd wasted three years because nothing had changed. He'd been taking pictures since his teenage years, so he figured he would try and make a go of it being an adventure photographer. Uh, I made the jump to that, that dream job, and uh, I got an assignment with National Geographic Adventure to go to uh, Africa, Southern Africa, for six weeks. Ended up spending seven years traveling the world, taking pictures for uh, outdoor gear companies and magazines. I ended up going to five continents and 23 countries and <laughs> getting this amazing sense of how incredible our planet is. I thought that was really cool because I wanted to inspire people to get outside, you know, and, that, and the purpose of that was so that people would feel strongly about protecting the planet. Well, I just got to the point where I felt like I needed to do something tangible again. There's only so much that photography can do. While Lynn was traveling the world, there was serious environmental trouble brewing around his home just outside of Zion National Park. In 2006, Utah's junior senator, Bob Bennett, was working to attach a provision to Congress's budget that would have sold 24,000 acres of Red Rock public lands to developers. That was a, a cry from the universe, or a call from the universe, really, to settle in and, and stop traveling and, and get tangible. Lynn, you worked really hard to become a photographer, and you had this great career. And to a lot of people, it sounds like a perfect job. I think a lot of people would have been happy with being a photographer. Um, they might have donated a couple photos or given some of their time, but that probably would have been enough. I mean, I hear um, what you're saying, that after, you know, why would you give up this career of traveling the world and taking pictures? But I guess the truth is that it ended up feeling kind of hollow. Really, how much good are these pictures doing? How... How much land is this protecting? How m much is this really benefiting the planet? Because there's so much self-promotion that's involved with uh, being a photographer. And I thought, well, is this about me? Or is, this a, is, is my life about me? Or is, this, is my life about the planet? And, you know, when it comes right down to it, I'd rather it be about the planet. Lynn founded Citizens for Dixie's Future which worked on land use issues surrounding St. George. They battled the Bennett Bill, 
and worked against a proposal to take more water from the Colorado River to feed St. Gross' growing water habit. And for the first time as an activist, Lynn began to have some success. His organization stopped the bill in 2006, even though there was a development-friendly Congress in power. And in 2007, they kept pushing. Bennett finally gave up the bill completely. That was a, a really big win, and that felt, you know, for the first time after 15 years of being involved in politics in southern Utah, it felt like, you know, we actually won one. It seemed for the first time that southwest Utah might subtly be shifting towards the middle. Members of the community approached Lynn. Would he run for office? And I thought, well, heck, that would be pretty tangible if I could end up being a decision maker to try to lead, you know, southwest Utah into a more progressive direction that's more kind to the environment. And uh, so I did. I ran for county commissioner. Washington County, it's a Republican stronghold. Lynn would run on a platform of thoughtful land use. That's a pretty liberal ideal. His opponent, a guy named Alan Gardner, was a seated commissioner, a decent human being, and wasn't really all that vulnerable. Basically, Lynn was facing an uphill battle. But he went to work anyway. The campaign lasted for six months. Uh, It was my full-time job. Supporters launched letter-writing campaigns. Lynn started raising money. A different set of values seemed primed to appear in Washington County. Years of rampant growth had changed people's perspective. They wanted it to stop. Or at least, that's what Lynn felt like. It was an amazing campaign. We pulled it off, you know, the, the strongest campaign that South, Southwest Utah has seen. And, you know, we amazed a lot of people. anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, who still wonders if the dream of our founders is alive in our time. The election night was, you know, a huge roller coaster because the first uh, results that came in showed us at 43% of the vote. But, you know, through the night we kept dropping. And we got more votes uh, than any non-Republican, shall we say, (laughs) uh, earned since the 1960s. Uh, We got 34%, which is 12% more than Obama got in Washington County. There were four days during the campaign when I felt like I could actually win, and I I was going to (laughs) win. And those were four, now looking back on it, those were four of the most delusional days of my life. But, hey, I was convinced. And uh, <laughs> just to see the, the numbers, like, oh, my gosh, we were so wrong. In the days following the election, Lynn was left to ask the hard question. What now? Go back to photography? What do you do after you've tried something? Put all of your efforts into it and learn the hard way that hard work doesn't always translate into success. It was time to to kind of evolve in my life because I had for 15, 14 or 15 years, I'd been fighting bad things. I'd been fighting water development. 
I'd been fighting, you know, the, the Bennett bill and then fighting the Lake Powell pipeline and fighting the coal-fired power plant. And again, it got to a point where I also felt like that was hollow. It was time for me to put energy into building something. These days, Lynn has left southwest Utah and moved to the Wasatch. After the post-election soul-searching, Lynn took a job working for a mid-sized wind power company. He's on the ground now, leading the environmental permitting process for large-scale wind projects in Wyoming. Lynn's left a lot behind. He still thinks about photography, and he hasn't ruled out running for office again. But for now, he feels as if his efforts, that long-seated passion for protecting the environment, has found a new, better-funded, and more probable outlet. I think any sane person who, you know, lives the life, live, you know, living the dream, who doesn't have children, who's living out of their, you know, Toyota, you know, there's a time in their life where that, you know, they say, why in the hell would you give up this life? Yeah, I've given up a lot of things to, um, I've given up the dream, but you know what? When those turbines are turning and when there's, you know, power being created from the wind as a result of lots of hard work on my part and a lot of good people that I work with, you know, I think it's kind of like having a kid. You know, it's like, wow, that was a sacrifice. Um, I gave up a lot of, you know, who, you know, my time and energy to help make that happen. And and uh, I'm guessing that that's going to be what it's like if I decide to have a kid. We all know John Muir as the godfather of conservation, but he didn't start there. He was at first a gifted but distracted student, then rampant wanderer before he migrated west to find a calling as a hiker, a storyteller, then a climber, before he settled into parenthood, farming, and finally, the most powerful voice in American conservation. He was a dirtbag before he was an icon took time and years in developing a powerful connection to the places he later sought to protect. So where do I fit into this movement? It's a question I've often asked myself. I haven't radically changed my life. I'm just some dude looking at a computer screen. And I wonder to myself, if this situation presented itself, would I have the courage to reshape my life? Would I have the courage to switch careers like Siri? or reinvent myself time and time again like Lynn. I'm not entirely sure. Somewhere though in my heart, I believe that I am John Muir, that you are John Muir, that we all have a Yosemite or an Ashloo, a red rock wilderness or five acres of fertile land. Maybe the, maybe the tide has changed and in the past people would leave this up to you know, the Sierra Club or organizations or bigger powers to, to save wild places. But it's getting to the point now that I think it's impacting us all. It's, it's crunching down, you know. There, there are so few places left for us to do our thing that we're that much more impacted by the fact that we may lose the very place that brings us what we love and what we, you know, experience joy from. I think Brian's right. I'm not saying 
that it's time for all of us to go out and make a career change or that by not having a personal cause, you somehow don't measure up to these people. True, carried by many shoulders, the job of protecting the environment might be easier, but in part, a lot of these people's success as new conservationists, it's been circumstance. Siri may never have become a farmer had she not struck up a conversation at the market. And had Brian chosen to work, instead of playing hooky and answering his friend's call to paddle the Ashloo, he would never have gone to that public hearing, taken a number, and started speaking out. Lynn might still be traveling the world if Senator Bennett hadn't proposed selling 25,000 acres to land developers. What I am saying, what each of these people would tell you, is be passionate, be curious, let your sport, let your dreams carry you into special places big and small. Find cold springs pouring from granite walls, know the fall wind moving through sandstone canyons, find your Yosemite. And should you one day have to defend it, the choice will be easy. Thanks to everyone for bearing with me. I thought this was going to be out last week, but I've made a rule with myself. Wait until the story is truly done. I hope it was worth the wait. Now I'm off to go pick up Siri's vegetable box. Music today by EGADS, The Most Serene Republic, Balmora, Do, Make, Say, Think, and Herman Dunn. As always, you can download the tracks and find more info about our artists on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. You can always contact us via email. That's dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. I love your comments and your motivation to get my button gear. You can also find me on Facebook. There's a link on the site, and I have my own personal account. We Twitter too sometimes. The Dirtbag Diaries wouldn't be possible without Patagonia. To keep up to date on all of Patagonia's environmental initiatives like Freedom to Roam and a lot of other important projects, visit their blog, thecleanestline.com. They help hundreds of new conservationists protect all the tiny and big places that need defending. Thank you. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing. Visit them online at newbelgium.com. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries.